This evening I'd like to speak about the the art of learning to read our life. You've probably all sometime received something as a gift or a present from somebody. And uh, perhaps something interesting, something useful. And maybe look to see how to make use of it, what it would do, how to make it work. And I wonder if you've ever had the, exa- had the experience of in looking at the, you know, unwrapping whatever interested, interesting thing it was with some anticipation, maybe some excitement, and discovering that the instructions were in a, an incomprehensible language that you knew that this thing was really great, but in fact you didn't quite know how to make it do that really great thing that it could do. And how one might sort of push at the buttons and tweak the knobs or shake it a little bit and whatever else, in the hope of somehow getting from it the potential that it offers. And in some ways our life is a little bit like that. We have this amazing gift, this precious and fragile gift of our existence. And yet, in the receiving of that gift, we haven't necessarily found, it would seem, the instructions. Or those that we have found, perhaps, don't seem to have produced the results that we might have wished or hoped for that don't necessarily satisfy the hopes or the aspirations that we had in the excitement of unwrapping the package. It's always kind of nice before you unwrap it when you don't quite know what it is. And yet you do, for most of us I think, we do hope that once we have unwrapped it we will know what it is and what to do with it. And we can understand meditation as in fact the art of learning to read the instructions of our life. To actually comprehend the information that is available to us which tells us how to live well and yet which we may not understand how to read, how to apply. So our meditation is a mirror for our lives. And when we look at what goes on in a meditation retreat, we see what goes on in our lives. And on the first day of a retreat, one of the things that for perhaps quite a few of us will stand out is that it's not that easy, is it? To be here. It's not always fun. It's not always exciting. Sometimes it's downright painful. Not all the time, of course, but enough of the time to make us notice it. And you know, perhaps that's a reflection on the way life is. That there is a certain degree of struggle, of dissatisfaction, of confusion and pain in life. 
and for many, the interest and the aspiration that brings us to meditation, that brings us to a retreat like this, is to seek to understand why that is so, how that is so, and what would be the most useful way to respond to it. Yet, easily in the process and the practice of meditation, we can feel that the challenges and the difficulties are somehow obstacles, somehow things which shouldn't be there. But in fact, the very reason that meditation is challenging is because it is real, just as our life is challenging, because it is real. And the challenges of our life, the challenges of our meditation, are the invitation to learn, are the invitation to grow, are the invitation to understand what our life is speaking to us if we were able to listen, if we were able to understand the language that it spoke. So what do we notice as we sit, as we walk, as we're here? We notice that quite a significant amount of the time what's actually going on is a is an activity of the mind. We call it thinking. We call it all sorts of things, slightly less polite than that sometimes, in reference to what goes on in our mind and our hearts. And we can have a sense of, of being pushed, of being pulled, of being driven, of being coerced, of being pressured, squeezed, stretched, Sometimes we feel like the old expression, you know, sucked in, chewed up and spat out through the mince, the mincing process of our mind, of our life. If we see this, it perhaps can generate within us a, rather than a, oh, I don't like that. I wish that would stop. I wish that would go away. Perhaps it can generate in us an interest, a genuine and deep interest to understand what is going on here in this thing that I call life. That so easily we believe we know what it is and we act as though we've understood this thing. And yet, the very fact that we find ourselves in conflict with it so often and so much of the time is the evidence, is the statement of the degree to which we have not understood, have not comprehended the truth of our life, have not understood the implications and the significance of what is happening right in front of us. In fact, not even in front of us, but immediately within us at any given time. And as I said, a lot of what stands out in that is the degree to which we find it difficult 
and equally the degree to which we wish for and aspire towards the end of difficulty the degree to which we experience conflict and equally the degree to which we hope and wish for peace the degree to which there is separation and we wish for connection whatever it might be for us it never happens in isolation it always happens in relationship to something else when there is difficulty there's always the wish for something else it seems and our life our life can become a movement of seeking for that which we wish that which we hope for that which we want it can seem to take on a a life of its own, so to speak, where we feel carried, where we feel almost drawn along magnetically or irresistibly in the flow of a current of life that that seems to be taking us in a pathway strewn with boulders and waterfalls in which we are buffeted and beaten swirled around at times it seems submerged occasionally spat out on the bank just to catch our breath for a little while and then again sucked away in the next flood tide it would be nice if sitting down to meditate meant that we just observed our breath and we became calm and clear and steady and felt our whole being start to glow with warmth and universal love, compassion and peace a little bit of bliss would be nice but we're not selfish we'll share it, you know we, it would be great if that was what happened but how do we deal with the fact that for most of us, much of the time that isn't what happens what would it be to really look at the process rather than react to it rather than give too much strength, too much weight to the mind that says, I don't like this I think that should be different can't we change this? maybe if they did it a little differently these retreats would be better more tea breaks, less meditation whatever it might be, more time outside it would be nice if we could just go for a wander down the lane rather than walking back and forth maybe if we did some visualizations rather than that breath, it's kind of boring isn't it, you know breath, one breath, seen them all all of that to see how easily our minds go down that track have you already thought about some improvements to Gaia House to how it runs I mean, probably a relief if you haven't then you don't have to wonder why they haven't done it it's so obvious isn't it or improvements to the way the retreat is run the form of the retreat, the schedule all of that I mean the longer we stay in the place it doesn't take long at all usually we start to think of how it could be better how we could improve it it would be just great if it was like this have you noticed yourself looking at what you see going on inside you doing the same thing thinking of the improvement thinking of how it could be just a little bit better actually how it could be a lot better 
you could just, you know, that bit would just go away or whatever it might be. Have you noticed what goes on when you do that? When we find ourselves drawn into that relationship to our experience where we're, it seems like hooked by it, caught by it, fixating upon it in a way in which we've got an agenda with it. It's not just this is what's happening, it's like I've got to do something with this. I've got to make something out of it. Whether it be me, whether it be my meditation, whether it be this whole planet. We can see our mind moving from the micro sort of maybe if I just adjust my little toe my posture will be just right to thinking about the problems of the world. And it's not that we should disregard such things. Maybe a little adjustment will help your posture. Maybe there are responses we should make to this world that we could make to this world. But what is the place that we're coming from when we respond to them? Much of the time where we're coming from is a place of contraction. A place where we're feeling under some degree of compulsion, of pressure. Where we don't actually have a sense of space and a, and a trust in our ability to move within that space. The ability of life to move within that space as it needs to much more we feel a sense of responsibility that we have to do it. We have to fix it. We have to get it right. Whether it be our meditation or our life. And when we're, when we're engaging in that way, when we're seeing through the eyes that see how this could be better or that should be got rid of, or how I need more of this and less of that. How when we're doing that, there's a, there's a way in which our world gets smaller and smaller and smaller. It just shrinks, contracts and shrivels. And it's almost as though the very life is squeezed out of it in that contraction. And yet we, in a way it's kind of amazing. At the same time it's kind of tragic. But there's a way in which we seem to believe, we seem to cling very deeply and profoundly to a belief that through organising, through changing, through fixing, through rearranging what is going on in our world, through rearranging what is going on in our inner life, our thoughts and our feelings, our body. That somehow by sort of taking all the pieces apart like a Lego, a Lego set or a jigsaw puzzle and putting them back together differently or getting rid of a few, that somehow we'll actually improve or somehow we'll come to a place where that process can stop. Because one thing we really notice when we're in that mode of trying to fix it change it, reorganize it. One thing we really notice is that we're not at peace in that place. There is, it's marked, in fact it's distinguished by a lack of peace, a profound 
unsettledness that runs incredibly deep. And yet while it is marked by that, at the same time something within us seems to understand that maybe it doesn't have to be this way. But if we look at what we're doing, we can see that we're looking into the world of things, of experiences, of sights and sounds, smells, tastes, body sensations, thoughts and feelings, looking into that world for something. I'm not often sure exactly what it is, but we somehow think we'll know when we get there. Looking for something from it. What can it give to me? What can I get from it? How good it will be when I get it, whatever it might be. And at the same time, of course, somewhat afraid that we might not get it, whatever it might be, get it together. But there's this sense that somehow that's the way. That's the way forward. And do we see meditation as a tool for rearranging our minds, reorganizing our hearts, getting rid of, or, you know, not getting rid of, because we know that's not really sort of spiritually correct, but just resolving all those difficult things, you know, letting them go, maybe. That sounds better, yeah. All those difficult things. Relaxing into the difficult parts of our body. And so that it's going to be comfortable from, not because we don't like pain, but just because out of compassion for our body, we should just relax so that it won't hurt anymore and we can just be easeful. In some ways, there's a root of genuine wisdom and compassion in those aspirations, but there's equally a fundamental mistake that underpins them and leads to the dilemma of a life that is unfulfilled, unsatisfied. There's a rather lovely story which I'm sure some of you will have heard before about Mullah Nasruddin, who's a, a Sufi teaching figure from the, um, from the Middle East and uh, is regarded as both a wise man and a fool. And one day, Nasruddin was uh, found sitting outside the village market with a large pile of chilies in front of him, red chilies. He was picking up the chilies, biting, chewing and eating them one at a time. And his face was bright red. His nose was running, his eyes were streaming. He was, his face was flushed and glowing. And he was obviously in quite some distress. His friends came along and saw him there eating these chilies and they said, Mullah, Mullah, what are you doing? He said, I'm eating these chilies put another one in his mouth and ate it and his whole body shuddered with the, the impact of the heat of the chili. And they said, his friend said, well, we, we know you're eating the chilies. We can see that you're eating the chilies. Why are you eating the chilies? Why are you eating those red hot chilies? And Nazarene picked up another one and looked at them and said, I keep hoping to find a sweet one.
And one sometimes gets the impression, gets the impression that Muller's seeming stupidity is simply in order to wake us up to our own foolishness. To what extent do we see our lives as something to consume, which we consume in the hope that through doing so we will find satisfaction, that somehow when we get it all together around us, within us, when everyone else cooperates, and if we just reflect on just that one fact, we'll see the odds of it happening are somewhat distant, let alone, of course, finding our own cooperation in this. Now, if everything would cooperate, it wouldn't be so hard to get things the way we want them. But they don't, do they? Perhaps even more frustrating than the fact that nobody else cooperates is that even ourselves, it seems, don't cooperate. Seems like following the breath might be the way to inner peace. Seems wise people in the past have said so. And yet, when we wish, when we try to focus our attention on the breathing, what happens? Well, yeah, we notice a few breaths, some of us, some of the time. And the rest of the time, the mind seems to do its usual dance. What would it mean to give up? To give up hope of getting it right, of reorganizing it into a form in which it's comfortable. It's a bit like sort of sitting on a bed of nails and noticing that one's sticking up. So you just knock a little bit below the surface, a little bit lower down, and then you start to think, oh, that one doesn't hurt. Great. Mm. Then you notice the next, the next highest one. and So you're tapping that one down, and then there's another one. And the process keeps going, doesn't it? We can feel like we're getting somewhere, aren't we? With a hammer, knocking these things away, knocking out the different difficulties of our lives. But so long as we think that the resolution of our life is to be found in that reorganizing, restructuring of our experience, we're really buying into, allowing ourselves to continue to be carried by a, a process in which there is no end. There's a place for self-improvement, there's a place for home improvement, you know, you can wallpaper the walls, it's great, why not? Get some new furniture, you know. It has its place, but ultimately it doesn't make it home. It doesn't make it home. And to learn what it is to be at home in our life, this is what we're truly interested in. To not make a home of it, to not try and make something out of it, to learn what it is to be at home in the midst of it. If we're truly interested in this, then take an interest in what's going on. Take an interest in your mind. See as it moves through the times of boredom, of disinterest, of excitement and enthusiasm, when we're feeling the beauty and the joy of being outside amongst the 
the birds and the flowers, the squirrels, the trees, the sky and equally at times when we're feeling the sense of the greyness and the dullness and sort of big square concrete block that we find ourselves sitting inside of the building sometimes looks like. To shift our life from seeking to manipulate, to control, to reorganize our experience, whether outwardly or inwardly. It doesn't really make much difference whether we're trying to find a more comfortable chair, a more comfortable relationship, or simply a more comfortable mind state or emotional experience. So long as that's our priority, our only priority, then we can't really learn from our life. We can't really learn what it is to read our life, to understand what it is speaking to us. And the shift in which we move from that place of pursuing one thing, avoiding another, treating our life as an object to either consume or avoid, to a place in which what we're really interested in is understanding it. This is the fundamental shift that determines and it would say, I would say, um, founds the spiritual quality of our life. A spiritual life is a life seeking understanding. So what can we understand from what's going on? You know, sometimes our body hurts, doesn't it? It really hurts. Sitting here for a while, we think, my body hurts. Now it hurts because they're making me sit here without moving. If I didn't have to sit in this posture, it wouldn't hurt. We think, why do I have to sit here? It would be just a lot easier to change my posture. Sometimes that's appropriate. Sometimes the pain is to a degree where we do need to make an adjustment. The wise and compassionate response. Other times it's just more in the realm of discomfort, irritation, just an itch that we'd like to scratch. And there's a way in which we can find ourselves just constantly adjusting, shivering, shimmying, sliding, shuffling, contemplating an extra cushion, a blanket, a Maybe a bench. Oh, that bench looks nice that person was using. Maybe that's more comfortable. Maybe my cushion's overstuffed. Maybe it hasn't got enough stuffing. What would help our body be more comfortable? And we miss. We miss the fact that our body is offering us a teaching that says, yes, sometimes it hurts. Just that simply. Sometimes it hurts. And so much of the momentum of our life, the restlessness we experience on our cushion, and equally the restlessness that drives us from one thing to another, to another, to another in our life, is the unwillingness to see and to accept this rather simple and bare reality. Sometimes it hurts. That's not to say that that's all there is to it. But it's clearly part of it. 
It wouldn't be such a universal experience if it wasn't. And it seems that the fact that it hurts is something that we often use to, to judge ourselves, to be harsh on ourselves, either on our body or when our heart hurts, on our inner life. We put pressure on. We say that this is not okay, this is not acceptable. I will not stand for this as though we would somehow, by the exerting of pressure, squeeze that experience from our consciousness. And yet you can imagine if something's already under pressure, where there is already pain, what happens when you squeeze it? The pressure increases. It hurts more. And yet often we feel compelled to do this, to put pressure on. There's a, a way in which our mind works when we're not conscious of it, when we're not paying attention to it, which governs how we experience much of our life. And it's, in simple terms, expressed as when our experience is pleasant, is enjoyable, is flattering. We want it to continue. We want it to stay. We want more of it. And when it's difficult, when it's painful, when it's unflattering, we want it to stop, we want it to go away, we want it to come to an end and not come back. And when it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, when it's rather neutral, we're kind of uninterested in it. We kind of really don't care too much at all. It's like there's nothing in it for me. It's not offering us anything. And so what happens, each and every experience that we touch is of one of these three characters, either pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. And that movement of wanting the pleasant, of not wanting the unpleasant, and of being disinterested in that which is neither, that which is neutral. And incidentally the breath, for the most part, is reasonably neutral is one of the reasons why it's quite challenging to stay with it. Because it's hard for us to be interested in that which is neither particularly enjoyable nor particularly difficult. But if you want to know about interest, you know, when your knee starts to hurt, interest isn't an issue. We, you know, the mind just goes there. We find there's plenty of interest. Or, you know, just have a sort of some sort of light, easeful, airy feeling in the body. Something pleasurable or a nice emotional thought, or, or a beautiful sight outside, maybe inside. The interest is really strong, really clear. But the interest that goes towards the unpleasant or the pleasant, the interest that is coloured and flavoured with either aversion, resistance, pushing away, or that is flavoured with craving, with attachment, with longing, with wanting, with hope, that quality of interest contracts. It shrinks. It squeezes. It sort of almost sucks onto the experience. And you may have noticed this. 
You may have noticed how when something is either enjoyable or difficult in your meditation, how it starts to assume this sort of significant, it almost grows in size. As our mind, it's not that it's growing, it's that our mind is closing around it, it's contracting around it. You know, the pain in my knee is the only thing happening in the universe right now. There's nothing else. And it's going to be like this forever. Or, wow, that quiet, peaceful moment in my meditation, we just sort of, wow, this is it. I'm here, I've arrived, got it. There's nothing else in this universe that's always going to be this way. And of course, in neither case is it something that lasts forever. But that process whereby the mind contracts around means that in our interest, in our attention, in our connecting with the experience, there's a loss of a sense of expansion, of expansiveness. In the neutral experience, it's slightly different what happens, we don't contract, but because there's no interest, because it's hard for us to be interested, there's no connection either. So we're not connected. And in our practice, what meditation... There's lots of things one can say about what meditation does or how it works. But one way we can understand it is a learning to cultivate connection without contraction, to be able to focus without contracting. It's like in learning to read our lives, in looking at what's going on. Our tendency is either to be kind of standing back from it in a way in which we're not really focused on it, we're not really engaged with it. And maybe we experience it sometimes like that. So sometimes a quality of sort of um, just low energy, lack of interest, sloth sometimes called, really. sort of evocative word, sloth. <laughs> and it's not like we're contracted, but we're not really there either. Or we feel like we're here, but we're here in a way that's rigid, that's brittle, that's contracted. And when we're when we're in that kind of soft, fuzzy, but disconnected way, it's almost like as if we're trying to read our life, but it's not in focus. It's, it's all blurry, so we can't actually make anything out. It's just a, just a haze. And sometimes it's a rather comfortable haze. You know, oh, it's all right. Not off, why not? It happens to all of us. But often when we come out of the haze, we realize that there's something uncomfortable in it, something not satisfying, not satisfactory about living in that haze. And yet, the other way that often what happens for us is that when we do have the focus and the interest, the contraction happens, and it'd be a bit like trying to read a book, and you know, you see that letter and it starts with a T, and your mind just goes into that T until you see this great big wide vertical black thing going up. And then somewhere up there it's got a big crossbar and anything. What does this mean? What does this mean? You know, I don't understand. <coughs> and that's probably how religious imagery gets evolved, you know. Wow, what's that? It's a big circle, you know. Wow, it's going round, round, round. Around. And what is that? You know, we ask them, what is it? It's a circle. 
Ah, all right, now I understand. It's a circle. And yet somehow that doesn't help us live our lives. We think we understand it. We think we know what it's about. One of the most significant and yet equally unsettling aspects of meditation, of retreats, and equally of life is that We don't actually we don't actually know as much as we really think we do about what is going on. And the sense that we have of a of a solidity in the world, of it really being in a certain way, is something of an illusion. It's something of a of an appearance that's created out of the way we interact with our world. Again, using the metaphor of the story, the words on a piece of paper, they might seem so incredibly rich and full of life and a nice story can be so beautiful when we read it. But that's because of what we're bringing to the story. I once had a really interesting experience when I was in my late teens. I found a children's storybook that had been one of my favourites as, as a young boy about these little people living under the, under the toadstools in the forest in Sweden. The, the, and I remembered it with such joy because I just remembered the story and I hadn't probably looked at it for 10, 15 years. I picked it up and I opened it and had this really sad experience of realising it was all in Swedish. I couldn't read a word. My mother's part Swedish. And whether, when I was a small child I could actually read it or I just remembered understanding it once. But whatever, it was meaningless. It was a bunch of squiggles on a piece of paper. The story isn't what's written down. It's a, it has meaning through the interaction of the reader with the story. And one can see the difference when a story is read. The quality that the reader brings and the listener brings is what brings the story alive. Our life is the same. We think it's something out there to do something with. And yet, so much of what we experience is defined and determined, particularly the qualitative aspect of it, is defined and determined by how we meet it, by how we engage with it, by what we bring to the experience. It's, I mean, there's many, many examples of how that is. You can hear the bell ring, and it's announcing lunch, and it's such a pleasant sound. Ah, oh, lunch. Mm. Mm. And exactly the same bell, exactly the same sound at the end of lunchtime, announcing the sitting. And somehow that sound seems really different. It's kind of like, oh no. Meditation again, I was enjoying lying in the sun, or resting in my room, or a cup of tea. What we do with the sound is completely different. So what are we doing with our life? What are we making of it? Meditation is to look with interest upon this process. 
to not take it for granted. We can sometimes wonder why why should I do this? Why? What, you know, like what am I doing here? This is crazy. Sitting around watching my breath, going for a little walk, coming back, watching my breath again. You know, we look at the schedule. We think sit, walk, sit, walk, stand, lunch, sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, stand, lunch. And that was dinner. And we think. What, what's the point of all of that? What's that saying? What's that mean? There's a lovely little cartoon in the Hermitage Wing. It's a, a Larson cartoon. And there's a picture of all these, uh, I, think they, I guess they're men actually, sitting in, a, in the galley of a slave ship with um, chained to the oars rowing. And it's got slave ship schedules, you know, 6am to 8am rowing. 8am to 10am rowing. 10am to 12am rowing. 12am, sorry, 12pm to 1pm aerobic exercise. <laughs> 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. rowing, 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. rowing, you get the idea. So actually we've got a really varied schedule here. But in another way, it's not like that. I mean, we can look at the variety and the diversity of activity, the outer forms, what we're doing, sitting like this, standing like that, walking in a certain way. And yet, we could actually put on the schedule, wake up. Actually, that would be enough. Just wake up. Wouldn't need a time. We could go a little bit further. We could say, wake up, be here. Just be here. That's what we mean. That's what we're talking about. What does it mean to just be here? Totally. To be uninterested in anything else. which is actually to be interested in everything. Because to be interested in everything in a way in which we don't say some things are interesting and some things are not allows us to find a quality of balance in our life where we're not picking and choosing amongst what we like and what we don't like, where we haven't already sort of allowed that tendency to overwhelm us, you know, that tendency to start to pick and choose. You know, if you already found your favourite cup, You've already been upset when someone got there before you and took it. Or the forks that you like and the forks that you don't like. I've got them, I know them. And look in that um, drawer out there, I know exactly which forks I like. Trying to feel good in the hand. Just little things. But to make our interest in our life uniform, total and complete. What would that be? It's not easy paying attention. It seems so often it's much easier just to allow ourselves to be carried away. And yet so often it's like just stepping on a runaway train heading for an unknown destination. And as it starts to gather momentum and we realise that the track seems to be stopping at a cliff or a brick wall, we start to think, hmm, Maybe I shouldn't have got on this particular train. Maybe I could have just watched it go by. To learn to just stop and rest in a place where we're watching what is going on. Using the vehicles and the tools and the techniques of meditation as a support for that process. 
to rest and see, to watch the flow of what is going on with an interest. Not an intellectual interest, but an interest that comes from our heart. An interest that's willing to accommodate whatever is there. That's willing to make space for the difficult. That's willing to acknowledge what is beautiful. And yet, which sees that life is flowing, is moving, as it does. To, to cultivate a quality of resting in our experience, where we're not trying to do anything with it, or make anything of it, we're not trying to get to a destination, or arrive at somewhere else, not even trying to get to where we are, because in fact, we cannot leave. We cannot leave, except in our imagination. To simply allow ourselves to arrive. To allow ourselves to arrive in the space that is here. As we find our willingness to do that, as we find and we recognize that we have the capacity to accommodate our life, that we don't need to struggle with the particular, we don't need to fix or rearrange or justify. As we start to trust that, as we start to see that this is possible for us, the sense of our life begins to expand. And in that expansion, we actually find that we begin to open. We find that the tendency to be grasping after or pushing away, and we see that it's not some act of punishment to let it go. It's not that we're depriving ourselves or punishing ourselves, but it's actually an expression of a profound caring and compassion to simply allow things to be, to allow ourselves to be in the midst of things as they are. And in that opening into that space, in that beginning to fully inhabit and embody in heart, mind, and in our physical nature, to actually fully allow ourselves to embody this living experience. That sense of expansion starts to speak to us of the nature of life. That the nature of life is not contracted, it is in fact open. It is in fact spacious. It is in fact warm. 
and alert and clear. And that within that, of course, there is hardness and coldness and blindness. And the whole beauty and tragedy of existence. But there's space for it all within that. And that space is not something outside of us, nor is it something within us. And yet it is here. We are not apart from it. May all beings live with clarity of mind. May all beings live with openness of heart. May all beings abide in peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.